Good morning. I love how in that song, uh, one of the lines is the fact that by faith we'll stand on your promises. And that's just such a a good snapshot of the Christian faith. And I'm excited because this morning our passage is chock full of those promises that we stand on by faith. Uh, they may not come across in the way you would think as, as we get into our passage this morning, but, but they are there, and, and I'm excited for us to, to look at the text and see what the Lord has for us. So if you would turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy, and we're actually going to just pick up right where we left off last week. And if you remember last week, we spent some time looking at three gospel remembrances that are meant to motivate every single genuine believer to a life of faithfulness. And so we're going to continue on from there this morning, closing out chapter 2 in 2 Timothy as we look at verses 11 through 13 at a trustworthy saying. But before we get to our passage this morning, I was reminded this week of something that took place in the 1600s. In the 1600s at Winchester College at Oxford University, Thomas Ken, who was an Anglican minister and then eventually a bishop, he came up with three short hymns. Now, those hymns may not be ones that we're particularly familiar with, but they're ones that he created for his students at that college. One of those hymns was meant to be sung by them in the morning when they woke up every single day. And each of these hymns was set aside so that they could set their hearts and minds on the things that are above. So once in the morning when they would wake up, there was one for them to sing at bedtime each evening. And then he also had a third hymn that was designed to be sung at midnight, not midday, midnight. Uh, And that was in case his students woke up in the middle of the night and found themselves restless and unable to get back to sleep. Each of these hymns ended with the exact same 25-word verse. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. How many of you actually heard that in your head as, as we were reading? It's kind of like the ABCs. You can't just say the letters of the alphabet. You have to sing the song. But Thomas Ken, he, he wrote what we simply refer to and is simply referred to around the world by many believers as the doxology. And it has become perhaps the most well-known verse of all Christian hymnology. And why is that? Why is it that Christians have been singing the same verse for over three centuries now? What makes it so special? Consider the words of David Mathis as he reflects on the doxology. He says this, As simple and accessible as these four lines are, Christians have been singing them now for more than three centuries. Because simple doesn't mean shallow. Plain does not exclude profound, which is one of the striking truths at the heart of our faith and one of the greatest evidences for its truth. From the Gospel of John to early creeds to the most widely known enduring lyrics we share with the global church today. 
This hymn has been passed down from generation to generation because it puts simple yet profound truths in plain language that can be remembered often and always. And it's done so that even when we're not together, singing together, we can have them at the forefront of our mind and remember them and meditate upon them as we go through our everyday lives. This morning, as we conclude our time in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we actually see that Paul provides us with such a hymn or a saying. These verses we explore are, are likely ones that would have been familiar to the early church. And it would have been these words that were likely rehearsed frequently and that those who were reciting them would be reminded, would be encouraged, warned, and even comforted by truths about the one true living God. And today we, we have an awesome opportunity to stand alongside those saints who have since gone on to be with the Lord and consider those words that they would have been well familiar with. Today we get a chance to receive a similar reminder, similar encouragement, warning, and even comfort that comes to us in the truth about our Lord and Savior. Now whether these words were originally penned by Paul or repeated by Paul, what we will see is these Verses provide us with four key theological truths that are meant to guide the whole of the Christian life. Four key theological truths that are meant to guide the whole of the Christian life. And they are as follows. First, the reminder, which is going to speak about past regeneration. Second, the reality, which is then going to focus on present endurance. Third, we'll talk about the risk. That is the possibility of future denial or faithlessness. And then we will conclude our time by considering fourth, the reason, which we are going to see and rejoice in the fact that it is our eternally unchanging God. Let's begin our time together in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to start back in the verses we went over last week and continue on through 13. Read with me now. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead of the seed of David, according to my gospel, for which I endure hardship, even to chains as a criminal. But the word of God has not been chained. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a trustworthy saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we will deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and prepare our hearts. God, we thank you for your word, for the promises that are found therein, which have guided your people for centuries and guide us still today until that morning star dawns and you are here with us. 
Lord, we long for that day, but we ask that you would provide us and continue to provide us, I should say, with what we need to live faithful and honoring lives. May we be equipped from your word today and encouraged to be faithful to you. Amen. So this morning, as we look at verses 11 through 13, the first key theological truth we need to consider is the reminder, which is going to be our past regeneration in verse 11. As we start working our way this morning through this trustworthy saying, what we need to remember, as with any passage in Scripture, is that this one does not take place in a vacuum. Right? There's a surrounding context that we have to get a good understanding of. These four hypothetical or conditional statements that we're going to see this morning, they're going to specifically address the historical situation in which Timothy finds himself, though it is still certainly applicable to us today. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, we notice that Paul presented Timothy with that what he was called to, if you would recall with me, those three images, each of which called Timothy to faithfulness in the Christian life. Then last week, we talked about the how. The how was you had to be motivated by the gospel. What we will see this morning as we continue on is Paul provides Timothy with the why with regard to remaining faithful all the days of your life. And as these whys unfold, we'll we'll actually see that Paul does so in chronological order to help us track with him. He's going to take us from past to present, and then from present to future, and then from future, he's going to address eternity, past and future. It's a beautiful thing. But what we see here in verse 11 is is after the introduction of this trustworthy saying, Paul provides us with that first theological truth. And in doing so, he calls us and Timothy, as he has so often done, to look back. This time, it's not just back to a couple of verses prior, but this time to something else. He says, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. The question here is, what is on Paul's mind when he's talking about dying with him, about living with him? We'll consider what we would learn in Romans chapter 6, which speaks very clearly upon this in verses 8 through 11. It says there, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, is never again to die. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we listen to the language in Romans chapter 6, as we listen to what Paul says, it's incredibly similar to what we see here in 2 Timothy 2 when he talks about death and life. 
And so when Paul is talking about dying, this leads me to believe that the first why that Paul points to is that, that Timothy needs to look back to his previous conversion and his baptism. He needs to look back to what Christ has already accomplished in his own life. And so every believer needs to do the same. We need to know that this truth here is that the one who would identify and align themselves as one of God's elect, when it says they live with him, it means they no longer live as a slave to sin. If they've been identified with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, they no longer live as slaves to sin. They've been transferred to that kingdom of light where we now, praise God, live as as slaves to righteousness. Right? We live exactly as we are to live for the first time in our lives, the way God designed us. The one who's now to be counted dead to sin, they no longer seek after or pursue sin. That makes a lot of sense. Could you imagine if if you talked to somebody who was living a life of unrepentant sin and they said, I'm a follower of Jesus. What do you think the first question off your lips to them might be? You know, maybe if you're very gracious, you say, hey, brother or sister, could I could I ask you to consider the life you're living? If you're a little bit more blunt, you might be like, really? Are you sure? You're identifying with him, but your life looks the exact same. If we've died with him, if we've truly submitted our whole selves to him. It's going to be evidenced by a changed life. Wouldn't we find it curious if Paul, who had been murdering believers, said he had a profound experience and went right back to murdering believers? No, a changed life. It's going to be shown in fruit. There will be fruit. This is what Paul wants Timothy and every believer to be reminded of. And especially, he wants this to be at the forefront of Timothy's mind as he's in the midst of trials. There are difficulties and challenges on every side. And Paul wants to remind Timothy, why do you continue to remain faithful? Why do you continue to live this way? Because that is what God has called you to. He's changed your life. Now live accordingly. Bear that fruit. Strive on, though you will not reach perfection this side of eternity. We still strive on towards that goal. That is what Timothy is reminded of by Paul. Timothy, there should be a change in your heart, in your thoughts, your desires, your affections, and your actions. If you would think back with me to the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turned his attention from what many of us would refer to as the golden rule to the way in which you identify false and true teachers. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit, it is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Though in this passage, Jesus is explicitly talking about false and true teachers. There are principles here that ought to be applied to the life of every single believer where you're going to see it is either evident that there is fruit or there is not. The believer will be identified by their fruit just as the unbeliever by their lack thereof. This is one of the ways in which you're able to assess the spiritual status of Another Vincent was talking about in the equipping hour that when you become a believer, there's not like a shiny E for elect that's on your forehead or we don't have a secret blacklight where we can check and see if that that has taken place. But we can have a good idea, though we certainly don't claim to pass judgment on another and claim that we know for certain. Whether or not there is the presence of fruit is a good indicator. So as we consider for ourselves the why behind remaining faithful to the end of our days, we need to recognize that fruit, a changed life, is an expectation in the life of the believer. That is to be bore by every single genuine believer. And that's what Paul points out here at the beginning of this hymn. So first in this trustworthy saying, we see that Paul presents us with the reminder namely past regeneration. Second, Paul is going to continue on by turning our attention to the reality, that being present endurance. In verse 11, we saw that Paul used the the past tense of the verb died, right? I talked about we're going through this chronologically. He used the past tense of the verb died to point us backwards to the believer's conversion, their baptism, the change that took place in their life in our first conditional statement here. And it's at this point, Paul continues on in that natural chronological progression by speaking of endure in the present tense, moving now from past to present, saying here, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. What we're going to see in the beginning of verse 12 here is Paul is going to give us the the primary tie-in in this passage to the context that is around Timothy. Because if we remember, Paul has already expressed the reason why he endures all things. But now we see he is explicitly speaking of the need for others to endure. He's calling Timothy and us to do the same thing, to endure As we've seen through Paul's example, as well as the writings of the New Testament, this this concept of endurance, it involves suffering. It involves trials. It involves temptation. We must remember that in the Christian life, suffering and temptation isn't a possibility, but a guarantee. It is a guarantee. Why do you think Paul is encouraging us to endure, to be ready? Because it's coming if it's not already here. It's in this trustworthy saying that the author, Paul, he he uses this present tense of endure as a clear way of telling the audience 
That there's a present and ongoing need for every single believer to endure. This is something they're actively participating in. This is not passive. This isn't just saying, all right, hold on and see how this goes. No, it's active. It's present. Be ready. Be on guard. Now, as believers, I want to say we gain great confidence in this portion of this hymn. And why is that? Well, it's because it speaks of the fact that the genuine believer who reigns or who endures will reign with him. The one who endures will reign. That is the ultimate eschatological hope of every single believer reigning side by side with our Savior and King for eternity. This idea of reign with him literally translates as to rule as king. Language such as this ought to bring our mind to the words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in recognition, or in regeneration, rather, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus gave his disciples specific hope that they would one day judge with him the twelve tribes of Israel. In a similar fashion, the, the genuine believer has assurance that should they endure, they spend eternity ruling and reigning with our Lord and our Savior. Now, as we read through this portion of this hymn, and we've seen this conditional of if you endure, you will reign. I would imagine for some of us, it brings a glaring question to mind. Is it possible for a genuine believer not to endure? I mean, right here it says, if we endure, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, we, we must rest assured. What is being spoken of here is not that of the genuine believer losing their salvation. And how do I know that? It's because Jesus himself speaks explicitly against that. Think about what he says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then he declares, I and the Father are one. If we remember, up to this point in John chapter 10, Jesus has revealed himself as the good shepherd. He's talked about the fact that he is not a hired hand. Rather, he is the good shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. And he has spoken explicitly about the fact that those who are his sheep know his voice. They are called and they come to him. And what we see Jesus clearly say in verses 27 to 30 there is that those who truly are his sheep, those whom he has called, those who have come to him, there's a promise there that they will receive eternal life. They will never be taken 
from the Son or the Father. Jesus speaks without question here about the way in which he preserves the life and the soul of every single genuine believer. So it must not be that Paul is suggesting that there are genuine believers who are in danger of losing their salvation. That just cannot be the case. Rather, Paul here speaks of what is addressed in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not truly of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be made manifest that they are not of us. In the present age, we know that the local church is made up of the wheat and the tares. There's a mixture of believers or unbelievers in the local body. What Paul makes clear for us here is that the one who does endure to the end, it will be clear and certain that they are a genuine believer and as such will reign with God, will reign with our Savior. That is certainly clear. Back in 2003, there were 16 men and women who gathered together for the famous or infamous TV show, Survivor. And it's a show that, if, if somehow you don't know what this show is about, it, it's about those who are, are surviving in challenging locations with, with minimal food, minimal resources, minimal shelter, and they're supposed to do so for 30 days. Should they survive that long, they get a chance at winning $1 million. And during the summer season of this show in 2003, uh, it took place in the Pearl Islands off of the coast of Panama. And though it was the middle of summer, there was, there was torrential downpours, and it just it looked miserable. And there were challenges that entire season because, first off, there was no real good area for them to get food. Their best way of getting food was spear fishing. And you got a lot of people that live in New York and they'd never held a spear to fish with before. And I mean, it was a challenge for them to go and get a hot dog from a vendor. So they're, they're not eating well. It was a hard season. There was heat, then downpours, and then they were just wet and sandy the whole time. And one by one, the contestants fell away. One by one, they were voted off until eventually only three of them remained. And those final three had one last challenge that they had to face with one another to see who would, who would have an opportunity to get a 50-50 shot at a million dollars. This challenge was simply to take a small wooden headpiece that they had been wearing, super light, nothing special about it, and the three of them just had to stand there holding it above their head. And whoever gave out first would be eliminated. It was hard to watch because there are people that, these people are malnourished, they're exhausted and tired, their arms are shaking after 30 seconds, but somehow they went from seconds to minutes and minutes to to hours of standing there and just holding on. And in the end, only the two who most desired the prize were able to endure. The call to endurance in the life of the genuine believer is not complicated, but it is hard. 
Brothers and sisters, we know that Jesus himself promises to protect the genuine believer until they go on to be with the Lord in glory. He states that very clearly in his word. And because of that, we need to remind ourselves of that often and always. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life will be easy. This does not mean that every moment from now on is a cakewalk. No, there's going to be trials. There is going to be suffering, but we must humbly, we must faithfully endure to the end. And we must count it as joy that we have an opportunity to suffer just as Christ suffered for us. Second, as we have continued to work through this hymn, we see the reality, that need for present endurance. Third, we will see the risk, here being that of future denial or faithlessness. Future denial or faithlessness. In, in the two parts of this trustworthy saying, we, we've seen so far conditional statements that have been encouraging for the believer. Right? If we have died, we will live. If we endure, we will reign. But then we're going to notice there's a key change here going from the end of verse 12 to the beginning of verse 13. The author's tone shifts quite a bit. He goes from hopeful and hope-filled to a stern, future-oriented warning. Again, past to present now to looking at the future. And though these next two conditional statements that we look at are similar to one another, they're going to be different in one key area. And so before we get that into that, let's, let's address both of them. The first one here, if we will deny him, he will also deny, or in other texts it will say disown us. If we will deny him, he will also deny us. I would say that this line of our trustworthy saying points us back a little bit to the previous saying. And it's addressing here those who have not endured. In other words, it seems like this first warning seems to be addressing the one who isn't a genuine believer. Here in the text, we see that the language there, there's language on the depart uh, or the part of one and then disowning on the part of another. The language seems to suggest this is one who who may have had the appearance of a relationship with the Lord, but they were never truly one of his sheep. They've had this appearance, perhaps, of commitment. It may have looked like there was obedience, but it was not genuine. This is exactly what we see in an example in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It says this, For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. The author of Hebrews here 
he gives a hypothetical example. This is not something that is taking place currently. It's a hypothetical example of something that may take place. It seems that the author is talking hypothetically about somebody who was in and around the church, and as such, they were able to take part in some of the gracious blessings that come along with that. Fellowship, worshiping alongside others, partaking of some of those certain blessings. But over time, it became clear that they were not truly part of the universal church. This person ultimately fell away. They denied the Lord, and such they did not repent. This is the kind of person we could liken to Judas Iscariot. Right? He, he walked with the Son of Man. He saw the miracles. He tasted of the fellowship of being with the disciples. But ultimately, he denied the Son of God and died in his sin. It's this person, the one who denies Christ as Lord and Savior, who will one day ultimately be denied by Jesus. This is the one who will come before him, say, did I not do all of these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. That is what we see there first in the beginning of verse 12. And then right after that, right off the heels of that, we read something that that is going to break from the previous pattern because we've had pretty simple, straightforward conditionals so far. There's been a lot of, of ifs and thens, but now... It changes. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Though I will admit this portion of this saying is probably one of the more difficult portions to to interpret and understand. But I think when you look at it in light of the end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 12, It makes a lot of sense to look as this one who has fallen into being faithless as somebody who actually is a genuine believer. Not just the doubling down here of talking about those who have truly been unbelieving. Right, what we see here, though some might argue that the faithless talks about the one who does not endure, the one who is not a genuine believer, but I think it's fitting that the faithless one here is more so the one that has given into that temptation of frailty, of stumbling, of falling into sin. This is not a wholehearted and complete denial. Rather, it is stumbling. Now, earlier when I talked about denial, I said we could liken that to Judas Iscariot. But here, as we talk about faithlessness, we get a better picture when we think about the Apostle Peter. This is a a temporary faltering or stumbling, as Peter did when he denied Jesus those three times. Paul, through this line of the hymn, he wants to accomplish a few things here. First, he wants to alert and warn the believer, hey, there's a possibility that even though the Lord has saved you, you may stumble into sin. And you need to have that at the forefront of your mind, and you need to be on guard. You need to press on towards maturity in the Christian faith and press on towards holiness. But he also wants to encourage us to say that should you stumble into sin, 
God is still faithful and will carry you to the end. God is greater than your sinfulness. God remains faithful. He remains faithful to his covenant promises. When he says he will keep you to the end, he keeps you to the end. What he says is what he means. If the sinning saint would but come to the Lord with a humble and a contrite heart and ask for forgiveness, it will be extended to them. Of that we can be sure, just as the Apostle Peter was restored. The end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13 provide both the unbeliever and the believer with a warning. A warning for what will take place if there's ultimate denial of the Lord. How the fact that, there, that if you truly deny the Lord, you are heaping condemnation upon yourself and you will one day stand before the Lord and be judged for your righteousness and be found wanting. Because there is no righteousness we can attain on our own. Yet for the believer, though we be frail or weak, there is still encouragement that God is still faithful should we stumble and fall temporarily. He remains faithful and will keep us until we someday, praise God, go to be with the Lord. So thirdly this morning, the apostle has presented the audience with a sobering risk, which is the potential of future denial and faithlessness. Finally, as Paul concludes this section, we're given the reason. And truly, this is the reason for the whole of this passage, which is the eternally unchanging God. Our eternally unchanging God. In this final section, we get to see the reason for everything that has been stated. And it is that he cannot deny himself. That's what Paul wants us to remember. He cannot deny himself. This idea of self-denial here on the part of God is connected very closely to passages such as Numbers 23:19, where we're reminded God is not man that he should lie. God does not lie. But what in the world does this hymn think it ha- what does it have to do when it's talking about God not lying, not denying himself? I would suggest that this makes a lot more sense when we recognize that every other aspect of this hymn is deeply and intimately rooted in who God is in his very nature. That is why it's such a big deal to say here that God cannot deny himself. All of these things that God has just revealed about himself, you know he's going to hold to that because that is who he has revealed himself to be and he cannot lie or deny himself. That first conditional statement, verse 11, if we died with him, we also will live with him. Right? God requires the one claiming to be a genuine believer. He requires they live a changed life. That second conditional statement, if we endure, we will also reign with him. God's promise here that he is going to keep the believer until that day when they will finally reign with him. The third conditional statement, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And that's because of his perfect holiness. 
He cannot allow sin to go unaddressed. He cannot allow sin to go unjudged. The unrepentant sinner will not be able to just skate by. And that fourth statement, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Once again, reminding us that God has promised he will cause the believer to persevere until they are one day with him in glory. Even if they be frail, even if we stumble, God will carry us on until our salvation is completed one day in glory. Each of these statements found in the hymn is firmly rooted in who God has revealed himself to be. And the author of the hymn is making it crystal clear that these statements are trustworthy because it's who God has revealed himself to be. That's why this is a trustworthy saying. Each of these is about the nature of God. And we know he will never go against what he has revealed to us about himself. In reflecting upon this, John Kitchen says, For God to act any other way than in accord with his own nature would require that he cease being God, which is impossible. The surety of God's covenant with and promises to the believer is grounded in the eternal constancy of God's nature, not in mere sentiment or sympathy. This past year in in October, I had the opportunity to attend the ACBC conference in Santa Clarita. And while attending this conference, the topic of conversation and consideration was the sufficiency of Scripture. And my favorite session by far was that of Abner Chow, where his, his focus was on common grace and the sufficiency of Scripture. And at one time, he sought to define for the audience sufficiency. And he did so by illustrating it. And so to illustrate this, he gave the example of a parent having a conversation with their child, a very inquisitive child who, maybe some of you can relate to this, they ask why a lot. The parent has told the child something and they respond, why? And so the parent collects themselves. They answer this new question a little bit more. And they're met with what? Why? The parent really feeling their sanctification getting tested they take a deep breath and they answer once again. And then the child continues and says, why? But when you get into this type of a conversation, there is a point where you can't go any farther. Because you have so distilled down your answer, you have gotten to what is foundational. right? What is the bedrock or what Abner Chow referred to as definition. Something that, that just is. right? If your child asks you, mom, dad, why is the sky blue? Ultimately, you may get to the point that you say, honey, the, the reason that the sky has the appearance of being blue is because God in his infinite wisdom created it that way. And for some reason, that is what gave him most glory. That's as far as you can go, right? You can't get past that point. That is foundational. That's bedrock. That is definition. At a certain point, you can't go any farther, the very nature of God is one of those foundational truths. Those definitions. And the reason we can trust each of these sayings 
as trustworthy is because they're all definitions. They're all truths about who God is. That's why we can trust them. So fourth this morning, we've seen the hymn conclude by focusing on that reason, which is our eternally unchanging God. Today, what we've seen is that the Apostle Paul has used likely what was an early church hymn. We're not 100% certain. But he's used it to show Timothy and us four key theological truths that need to guide the whole of the Christian life. That reminder of past regeneration, that reality of present endurance, the risk of denial or faithlessness, and the reason which is our unchanging, our perfect and holy God. This morning, if we wish to walk away from here understanding how to honor the Lord, how to continue on in faithfulness for the rest of our days, we first must absolutely, totally, and completely be convinced of each of those theological truths. We need to understand that who God is is that foundation. Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Of this we have to be certain. This is the bedrock. This is the system of roots from which each of those branches, those theological truths grow. They all stem from who God is. If we believe in that unchanging nature of God, if we call ourselves Christians, we will live changed lives. Maybe take some time this week. Where do I stand in this area? Am I bearing the fruit that I'm supposed to be bearing? Have I become stagnant or lazy? That can happen. We must be on guard against this. So we must evaluate, consider, and inspect that fruit. If we believe in the unchanging nature of God, then we can endure all things, even to the point of death. If we truly believe God will keep us to the end of our days, then those short-lived trials, those challenges are nothing in comparison to the glory we look forward to someday. They're nothing. We can stand secure in the face of those trials, not being shaken, not being moved. If we believe in the unchanging nature of God, we know also he won't allow sinners to go unjudged. And friends, this needs to to spark a fire under each of us because if we know that to be the truth, we need to be going and proclaiming the remedy to that. We need to look at the unbelievers around us and in love call them out and say, I'm concerned for where you're heading. I know who God has revealed himself to be, and it's not okay enough to be a good person. Let me share the gospel with you. Let me share the hope with you. If we know that they may go unpunished, it should give us urgency to proclaim that gospel message. We need to go and to proclaim and declare that unchanging nature of our God. May we go from here this morning sharing with all who God is, who he has revealed himself to be, to the believer encouraging them that the Lord will hold them till their very last day and to the sinner to warn them, to call them to repentance such that they one day maybe would turn and pursue the Lord.
I'm going to close this in prayer. And I know it's already noon, but we're going to sing one last song together. So let's pray and then we'll sing one final song together this morning.